I want to begin today's message with a reading from the book of Proverbs that I think is appropriate. Chapter 7, verse 6 and following, it says, For at the window of my house I looked out through my lattice, and I saw among the naive and discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing through the street near her corner, and he takes the way to her house. In the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. And behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. She is boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner. So she seizes him and kisses him. And with a brazen face she says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I have paid my vows. Therefore I have come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly. And I have found you. And I have spread my couch with coverings, with colored linens of Egypt. I have sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. And let us delight ourselves with with caresses. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him. At the full moon he will come home. With her many persuasions she entices him. With her flattering lips she seduces him. Suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. Or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver. As a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know that it will cost him his life. So he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. Now, I know that this particular passage is about the physical act of adultery. And I think all of us would look at this and read this and and agree with the author that the individual who is following after the seductress here is a fool. Doesn't he know better? Is he just caught up into his passions? I mean, we, we read this from the, the eyes of the author and we say, you fool, don't go. Run for your life. We, 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 we go back and hasten back to the time of Joseph when Potiphar's wife came and tried to seduce him and he ran away and he fled and we rejoice and cheer for Joseph saying, good job. And we look at this guy and we say, you fool. The Bible speaks of two kinds of adultery. It speaks of physical adultery, which we read here, and we agree with the author saying, you fool, run for your life. It speaks of another kind of adultery, a spiritual adultery, that is denying God our Savior and taking up with some other deity, some other God, if you will, In either case, like the ox that is led to the slaughter. Today we will continue reading in the book of Revelation. And we will be, and we continue to consider this image that John presents to us of this great harlot who seduces people to 
deny God, to reject Christ. This is the spiritual adultery. To join in an action, to join in a lifestyle that will bring destruction to those who pursue it. Let me give you a little bit of review as to where, we're, where we have been so that we're all kind of up to date as we proceed forward. Because in chapter 17, we are um, kind of in the middle of a, of a thought. But what we saw previously, basically in chapter 16, I'll only go back to chapter 16 to give you the immediate context here. But what we saw in chapter 16, you'll recall we saw a judgment cycle. All right, a series of seven bowls poured out. These were seven judgments that were poured out on the earth. And what we saw in the sixth and the seventh bowl, the sixth and seventh judgment, we saw that the great city, Babylon, had fallen or was judged. That's what we saw back in chapter 16. Now, chapter 17, 1 through 19, 10 is John focusing his camera lens and zooming in on bowls 6 and 7 so we get a detailed view of the fall of Babylon. Alright, you with me? So, bowls 6 and 7 was described from a distance. The fall of Babylon. Now, chapter 17 through 1910, we're zooming in and we're seeing the details of that fall. We're seeing the details of the destruction of Babylon that John brought forth or communicated to us in the 6th and 7th bowl. Alright, so that's kind of where we've been, a little bit about where we're going. Now, let me give you a preview because I want to highlight a little bit of where we're going so that... um, all of this makes sense. I'll try not to confuse you. Before I give you a, an idea of where we're going today, let me try to give you a where we're going in the big picture. All right, Because we're nearing the end of the book of Revelation. So let me kind of give you the big picture of the trajectory of John's account. What we will be seeing is we will be seeing today and next week and perhaps the following week, we're going to be seeing the judgment of Babylon. Now hold that. I'll unpack who Babylon is and what Babylon represents in just a moment. But just trust me. So we're going to see the judgment of Babylon. But after we see the judgment of Babylon, then we're going to see the judgment of the false prophet. We were introduced to the false prophet a number of weeks ago. The false prophet um, entices people to follow the beast. So we are going to see the, the judgment of the false prophet. Then we're going to see the judgment of the beast who causes men to deny Christ. And then we're going to see the judgment of the dragon, which the Bible tells us is Satan. So do you see what's going on? Everything's being undone, right? And before God, what, where we're going is we're going to a new Jerusalem. We're going to a new heaven and a new earth. But before God recreates the new heaven and new earth and establishes the new Jerusalem, He undoes the old Babylon. 
And he then judges all wickedness and all that is opposed to God. So before the new heaven and new earth is established, the wickedness of the old heaven and the old earth is brought to justice. Does that kind of make sense? So everything is going to be brought to justice and then he will renew and make all things new and he will restore and put everything back the way it's supposed to be. Remember, the book of the Bible, when we look at the meta-narrative or the overarching story of the Bible, it is about God creating everything in perfection. Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And then man breaking everything. Genesis 3. And then it is a story. The overarching story is God restoring things, putting things back the way they were. This is why the book of Genesis begins in a garden and it ends in a garden. Alright? This is why you see the same imagery in the new heaven and new earth, in the new Jerusalem. You see the same imagery back in, over in Revelation 22. We're not there yet, but we're going to see the same imagery there as we saw back in Genesis 1. Alright? So, God is restoring and putting things back. It's taking a long time. Perhaps that should be an indicator of how radical the fall was. So, that's kind of the big picture. We'll narrow things down a little bit and I'll give you a preview of where I hope to go today. What we are going to see is John describing the judgment of Babylon. You'll recall last week in chapter 17, 1, John says, an angel says that I'm going to show you the judgment of Babylon. And then John takes off on a rabbit trail and talks about um, something else. So now we're actually going to see John describe the judgment of Babylon. That's what we're going to see today and next week. Let me define for you and describe to you how we are understanding Babylon. Babylon we are describing not as, a, as the historical empire or the historical uh, city of Babylon, but Babylon here is representative of this world system that is opposed to God. It is the city of man. There are two cities. There is the city of man and the city of God. And we're going to see the, the new Jerusalem in a little bit. In a, down the road, um, as we study through this book, we're going to see the new Jerusalem, the city of God. But right now, we're seeing the city of man. That world system, that philosophy, that worldview that is opposed to God, that rejects Christ, that shakes its fist at God, that says, I have no need of you whatsoever. It is the city of man. And in our study today, we will see God begin to bring that to justice. It is important that we give close attention to Revelation chapter 18. Because I don't know about you, but the seductive allure of this world system is very attractive to me. And maybe you're more spiritual than I am. And perhaps the things of this earth don't seduce you. But I think most of us, when we're honest with ourselves, 
realize that we are easily led astray. This is why Jesus over and over and over again, especially in Matthew 24, when he's talking about some of these events, he's saying, don't be misled, don't be deceived, don't be deceived, don't be misled. False Christs are going to arise. They're going to show signs that if it were possible would deceive even the elect. This is how deceptive they are. And the lure of this world is an ever-present temptation for believers. So it's important that we understand this chapter well. It's also important to understand this chapter well because God calls us to come out of this world system. And I'll unpack that as we go along, what that actually means to be separate from this system that opposes God. So, that's a little bit of context, a little bit of where we're going and why we need this. Now, let's go ahead and join with me as I read chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Here we go. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird, for all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her immorality and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality I heard another voice from heaven saying come out of her my people so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues for her sins have piled up as high as the heaven and God has remembered her iniquities Pay her back, even as she has paid, and give back to her double according to her deeds, in the cup which she has mixed. Mix twice as much for her. To the degree that she has glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and I am not a widow, and I will never see mourning. For this reason, in one day her plagues will come. Pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for the Lord God who judges her is strong. Now, one of the things I, I think I should mention to you before we get into this is that John, you'll recall as we go through the book of Revelation, what is our interpretive guide? Do you remember? It's not current events, it's the Old Testament. The Old Testament is our interpretive guide. And so we use Scripture to interpret Scripture. And if you really want to get great background on Revelation chapter 18, I would highly encourage you to read Jeremiah 51. You will be amazed at the uncanny resemblance. It's very, very similar. The language is very similar. But we'll also see other, um, uh, other Old Testament allusions. We'll see allusions to Isaiah chapter 21. And we'll see I- Isaiah chapter 48. And some other um, Old Testament passages. But Jeremiah 51 is really a close parallel. And so here's what's going on. Jeremiah 51 is an account of the fall of historic Babylon. Remember there was a Babylonian empire, right? And they had enslaved Israel and the Jewish people. And the Jewish people went into uh, 
exiled for 70 years, and one of their captors was Babylon. And God says, I'm going to bring Babylon in, and they're going to destroy you and take you captive. And then I'm going to judge them, and they will fall. Jeremiah 51 is about the historic fall of that ancient empire, Babylon. Okay? It's basically a history account of a, the historical fall of Babylon. And so in Revelation 18, we are going to see John use the fall of the historical empire of Babylon to describe the fall of this spiritual world system that he calls Babylon. Does that make sense? He's going to use this historical event to describe this spiritual event. And so we're going to see John use the fall of, of Babylon. And if you research this a little bit further, you'll also see that John uses the fall of uh, uh, a city called Tyre. And he uses those historical accounts to describe what's happening here in Revelation chapter 18. So you need to understand that the fall of historic Babylon is lurking in the background and it gives John the framework by which he describes the fall of this, uh, this world system, uh, the spiritual Babylon, if you will, that takes the people of God captive and enslaves them and corrupts them and causes them to deny God. Alright, so, with that as our background, John begins with saying, After these things I saw another angel coming down out of heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. So now John sees um, another angel coming down from heaven, and he describes this angel. Um, in this type of literature we see um, lots of angelic and heavenly uh, guides, if you will. And so John sees this angel, and he describes this angel as having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And so the fact that he has this great authority should alert us to the fact that the message that is going to be declared is one of great importance. Because this angel has great authority, therefore the words that he speaks are of great importance. This is an alert to the reader, pay attention. Don't fall asleep here. Don't start napping and start nodding off and letting your mind wander. How many of you do that sometimes when you read that? I know you guys don't because you're all religious. But sometimes when I read the Bible, my mind ends up wandering somewhere else. I'll confess that you don't have to. John is saying, now at this point, don't let your mind wander because what's about to be said has great authority. It's really, really important for you and I to understand this. And so this angel comes and he has great authority and he has... Um, he is illumined, and the, the earth was illumined with his glory. This is a powerful being. He, he illumines the earth with his glory, which reminds us over in the book of Habakkuk and other places where let the, let the glory of the Lord fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Let the glory of the Lord uh, Cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And so we see this angelic being who has been in the presence of, of God naturally reflecting the God in whose presence he resides. I hope that would be true for you and I, that as we come and we enter into the presence of God, that when we leave or when we go from our, our, our times of being in God's presence, that, that glory goes with us. Yeah. 
And, and I think that, that John takes this language straight out of Ezekiel 43.2, which I think is important. Because in Ezekiel 43.2, the glory of the Lord is returning back to the temple. If you're not familiar with the book of Ezekiel, I'm not sure how many uh, experts in the book of Ezekiel we have here today. Um, but early on in the book of Ezekiel, you'll recall that the Spirit of God left the temple. The glory of God left the temple. And in Ezekiel chapter 43, verse 2, we see a recording of the glory of God, the Spirit of God returning back to the temple of God. And I think John takes that language. It's almost kind of alluding to the fact that the glory of God is about to present itself again in great and wondrous ways. And so he comes, this great angel with great authority that whose glory illuminates the whole earth. And he comes and he begins to pronounce two things. The first thing that he's going to pronounce is that Babylon, this world system, this spiritual adulteress is about to be judged and that you, the people of God, are to remove yourself and run for your lives. And he says, fallen, fallen is Babylon. Again, this comes out of Isaiah chapter 21 and Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 8. Both are accounts of the fall of the historic city of Babylon. And so, just as historic Babylon fell, so now this spiritual Babylon is about to collapse. And this is the Lord's doing. Here's what John is doing. He is assuring you and me, he is assuring his readers that the future is rooted in the past. That the certainty of our future is rooted in our past. And just as God judged physical Babylon for her wickedness, so He will bring an end to the spiritual Babylon that enslaves people. How many know that God often does that? That He roots the present in the past. That's why He makes so many promises. He makes promises and promises and then he brings them to pass. This is one reason why we... The Bible is set in history. And when you see these historical accounts happening and then God brings about their fulfillment, then we can say, oh, I see what God's been doing. And so we can be certain that the spiritual Babylon that causes so many people to turn from Christ and go their own way will come to an end. And this is the Lord's doing. We should note that the spiritual Babylon um, is described as a harlot. That is, she is outwardly alluring, but inwardly demonic. Her judgment lies in the fact that she is idolatrous and in her idolatry she has seduced nations and rulers to align themselves with her, to buy into her lie. And to say, yeah, this is a good thing. Let's go. Look how beautiful she is. Let's go. But remember, the book of Revelation tells us how things really are. And the way things really are is that this system is outwardly appealing, but it is inwardly demonic. And we need to be aware of what's on the inside. 
you and I are too quick to judge a book by its cover and we say, oh, well, that's attractive. But just like the individual in the book of Proverbs, he was enticed by the beauty of this woman, but he was like an ox being led to the slaughter. And this is what spiritual Babylon does. (coughs) The kings of the earth and the rulers of the earth have accepted her idolatrous demands. One of the things we see from buying into this world system is that, or maybe I should say this, let me put it in the negative. One of the things we see from not buying in to this world system is that economic security may be removed from those who will not align themselves with her. Just as those who would not align themselves with historic Babylon and they suffered economic hardship, so we see those who will not align themselves with this world system may suffer economic hardship. We saw this in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, didn't we? That if you did not buy into the world system, that you would not be able to buy or sell. And we see this increasing in our society today. If you dare to call something sinful, you can be fired from your job. Literally fired from your job, even if you said it 20 years ago and somebody digs it up. You can be fired from your job regardless of of your actions. That is, when we stand for gospel truth, when we stand for the principles that God has laid down in the authoritative word of God, and if we stand for that and say, this is what God calls right, and this is what God calls wrong, you can be fired. I think that's increasing, and we'll just see it more and more. Babylon will be judged for alluring men away from God. So I guess let me just draw a little application here. Idols of the age appear harmless. Idols always appear harmless. Idols even appear helpful. In fact, idols often work. What did idols do? Idols just basically gave you one up on your enemy, basically, or gave you control over somebody else, or helped you get ahead, or gave you some level of control. And idols appear to work at least initially. But idols enslave. Some people will say, well, what idolatry is, is anything that usurps God's position. Anything that you place above God is an idol. I would agree with that, but let me add one more thing. And I think that this this narrows it just a little bit. It is. Anything that you place above God is an idol. Let me add this. Anything you place alongside of God is also an idol. Not just those things which you place above God, but those things which you equate or place as equal of value as God. In other words, I hear a lot of people who say, well, we love Jesus and...
I'm going to spend a little more time on that a little later on, but right now I'm going to move along. And see, now we see another voice in verse 4. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive her plagues. For her plagues have piled up, or her sins have piled up. Come out of her, my people. Why is this? Because of her impending doom, because she is going to fall, because of this, wavering believers are exhorted to sever their relationship and no longer compromise. So come out. I think we see in Jeremiah 51:45. Do I have a scripture there, David? Yes, I do. Look at that. This is, this is talking about historic Babylon. You can see where John gets his language. Go out from the midst of her, my people. Let everyone save his life from the fierce anger of the Lord. And then in Isaiah 48, 20. Go out from Babylon, free from Chaldea. Declare this with a shout of joy. Proclaim it. Send it out to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. This is the word to the people of God today. Come out of her because he has saved you. She is about to fall. Her doom is certain. How do we know her doom is certain? Because we've seen it in the historic past. It will occur again. So come out of her, my people. Save your own life. This is exactly what John says. Don't participate so that you won't participate of her sins and receive her plagues. Come out of her. Don't save your own life. Don't be like the ox being led to slaughter. Get out now. Get out from Babylon. Flee from Chaldea. Declare this with joy. Not like, oh, wow, I really like that whole system. But I guess I'll go because God will no, with joy, because God has redeemed you. He's not destined you for that. So get out. So because of our impending doom, believers, and I believe especially wavering believers, are exhorted to sever their relationship with this world system. Her impending judgment and her impending punishment should cause you and I to resist her seduction and prohibit cooperation with her evil ways. The Bible says her sins have piled up. This kind of gives me the picture of Babel. Remember the Tower of Babel? How they just built this, um, this tower building to usurp God? So like Babel reached to the heavens to dethrone the Almighty, so spiritual Babylon, her sins have piled up and they are reaching to the heavens. They are, she has sought to replace God with some man-fashioned religion. And she glorifies herself. Look at this in Isaiah chapter 47 where we see the exact same language. Isaiah 47. Um, I'm going to start with uh, verse 5. But again, we're going to see very similar language. God speaking. Sit silently and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you will no longer be called the queen of kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage and gave them into your hand. You did not show mercy to them on the age. You made your yoke very heavily and heavy. So here's God saying, listen, here's the thing. 
My people Israel sinned. And so my judgment came against them. And I used you, Babylon, to bring about my judgment. And you treated them harshly. Then, verse 7, Yet you said, you, Babylon, said, I will be a queen forever. These things you did not consider, nor remember the outcome of them. Now then, hear this, you sensual one, who dwells securely, who says in your heart, I am, and there is no one beside me. I will not sit as a widow, nor no loss of children, but these two things will come on you suddenly in one day. Loss of children and widowhood, they will come on you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries, in spite of the great power of your spell you felt secure in your wickedness no one sees me John takes that language and says this Babylon is the same thing the spiritual Babylon she sits as the queen as though nobody can destroy her notice what um, is recorded in, in Isaiah chapter 47 who says in your heart I am and there is no one beside me Do you ever hear any other language in Isaiah like that? That comes straight from God. God is the one who says, I am and there is no one beside me. And here is Babylon saying, I am and there is no one beside me. She has lifted herself up to the place of divinity. She has lifted herself up in place of God and say, I am the sovereign of the universe. I am the one who is in control. I am the one. This is a usurpation of the throne of God. And John takes that language from historic Babylon and applies it to this world system who's saying, I am the queen. I will never be destroyed. I will never be widowed. No end will ever come. And we look around our world system and we see it crumbling and collapsing. We see the perversity and the horrific nature of it. And we say, what can you do about it? Just like historic Babylon says, I will come and in one day you will fall. John picks that up and says, in one hour you will fall. This is a woman who is filled with pride. She glorifies herself. She says she has no need of God. But just as historic Babylon saw herself as the source of nourishment, who will, who will never be without the support of her children, latter-day Babylon will also be quickly unsupported and will fall because she has usurped her place. In other words, spiritual Babylon in the book of Revelation is idolatrous, immoral, and proud, and she will fall. And it will come in swift judgment. John says in one hour. I don't think that's literal. But it will be swift. Now that I've kind of established those points, let me draw some application. I hear many people today and we'll be talking and oftentimes we'll say well you know I'm just going to enjoy the fruits of spiritual Babylon this world system and the seductions of the world while I can but you know eventually I'll just I'll get right with God after I've had my fun first of all you don't know what tomorrow brings and you don't know what your next breath brings so let me just state the obvious truth you have no idea Let me state this also. You are misunderstanding the joy and the beauty of giving yourself to Christ our Lord. 
because the fulfillment of serving Christ is so far beyond serving Babylon. I don't know how many people we've talked to have come to the Lord later in life and they said, I don't know why I didn't do this earlier. And their great regret is that they didn't do it earlier. So what are you waiting for? And if you are a wavering believer, somebody who says that, you know, I'm following Christ, but you are entrapped and enslaved into this world system thinking, I would encourage you that it is time to, to get out. The seduction of Babylon, of spiritual Babylon, is great. And we see it infiltrating the church. We see it infiltrating Christians. You may have heard of this phrase. If not, I think it's important for us to understand. And the phrase is moral therapeutic deism. I don't say that to confound you or even to sound smart. But I want to unpack that a little bit because it infects us, it impacts us, and it it affects the church and it affects the believers it perhaps even affects this church and us as believers moralistic therapeutic deism it is exactly what it sounds like moralistic that is it's about being good it's about being nice it's about being kind it's therapeutic that is it makes you feel good about yourself and it's deism and deism is just the old belief that God, there is a God, and He did create everything, but after He created everything, He retreated to the distant recesses of the universe, and He has no interaction with the world, and no direct interaction with you and I. That's deism. This is moralistic. It's all about being nice and kind. It's therapeutic. It makes me feel good about myself, and I believe that there's a God, but He really has no um, dealings with me. We'll see one caveat, except when I'm in trouble. Then this God comes from the moral, from the recesses of the universe to come and help me. But here's the five tenets, basically. There is no, you can't find a moralistic, therapeutic, deistic church, okay? There is no first moralistic, therapeutic, deistic church, okay? Um, but it's in our churches, okay? And there are many churches who ascribe to this because it reaches culture, all right? It brings in the crowds, and we can. Sometimes we might even, some of the, some, I don't want to lump everybody into the same boat, but some seeker-friendly churches, this is their dogma. This would be their five points. That God exists, okay, well we all agree there. We're not going to be too specific about what kind of God, but there is a God, a creator, he exists. And that God wants you to be happy. The central goal of life is to feel good about yourself. Westminster Confession says, What is the chief end of man? To love God and enjoy Him for glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And MTD, the central goal is to not glorify God and, and enjoy Him forever and to feel good about yourself. And that God is not involved in our lives except to help us when we have problems and good people go to heaven. Those are the five tenets, basically. It is an ideology of individualism that prides itself on non-judgmentalism and reluctance to assert that anyone may actually be in error in matters of theological truth and belief. Have you ever tried to say, that's, that's not true? See, you can't say that nowadays, really, without getting some sort of, well, you're just a hater, right? That's what you, you're a hater. 
and you're a bigot and you're whatever else. As soon as you say, well, that's not, that's not what the Bible says, well, you're a hater. That comes from Christians. Okay, I'm not even going to talk about the world. I'm going to talk about us within the church. That it's very relativistic. We live in a day and age where there is no such thing as a standard of truth. That all truth is good. Anything you say is true. This is why many people in the church are abandoning traditional Christian beliefs. Relativism says whatever. Whatever works, whatever you know, floats your boat. If that's good for you, then hey, who am I to judge? I'll tell you who you are to judge. You're a child of God, and we are. All right, please do not quote Matthew 7, 1a. Don't judge. Quote Matthew 7, 1a, b, and the rest of chapter 7, because it tells you how to judge. We do judge. How do you discern right from wrong? How can you say this is a good thing and this is a bad thing? Does anybody believe murder is wrong? Raise your hand. All right, well, you're judging. How can you say that? Because we all judge. We all determine what is right and what is wrong. The Bible just tells us how to do it. So we don't do it in hypocrisy. We don't do it outside of the the scope of loving our neighbor. The relativism simply says, oh, well, whatever. You know what, if that's what you believe. Moral, relative, moralistic relativism, moralistic therapeutic deism is not a religion about repentance from sin. It is not about living as the servant of the sovereign most high God. It is not committed to spiritual disciplines. It is about a God who is distant and only involved when I have need. He, he is a God that does not thunder from the mountains of Sinai. He will not return in glory to judge the living and the dead. He makes no demands. He is only interested in solving our problems and making us feel better about ourselves. But the Bible is quite different. It presents a very different view of God. The Bible, the biblical view of God, is one who thunders from Sinai and the people fear. We're not going up there, Moses. You go over there. We heard the thunder. You go. biblical understanding of God is that Jesus Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead he does make demands take up your cross and follow me anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not worthy of me yeah that's and I quoted a biblical a New Testament Jesus because if people think well yeah you can just quote a bunch of Old Testament stuff he makes demands He is interested in solving our problems and making us feel better. But that's not his highest goal. His highest goal is to make saints out of sinners. His His highest goal is to conform you to the image of his son. That's his highest goal. His highest goal is to get you across the finish line. Holy, blameless, and without reproach. So we are to separate before the judgment comes. Separate so that you will not participate in your sin. So how do we separate? 
I mean, are we supposed to withdraw from culture? Well, you know that's not true. You know I don't hold to that. There might be some who hold to that. But we are not. We do not separate from culture or withdraw from economic activities. But here's the thing. You may, and I may, be shunned for refusing to compromise with Babylon. But we are to remain in this world as a witness. We, Jesus said that you are salt and light. You are a city on a hill. Nobody put, takes a lamp and hides it under a bushel. It's to shine. You may suffer for your testimony. We see this in Revelation 6, 9, 12, 11, 17, 12, 11 and 17, and 17, 6. Second Corinthians chapter Second Corinthians chapter six seventeen. Actually with fourteen it says this in relation to come out of her. Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, or what harmony has Christ with Belial, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever, or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be my, their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore come out of her midst, and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. We are to separate from the unbelieving ethos of this world. From, I mean, we work together, but we are not seduced by the outward beauty that this world offers us. But rather, we are enamored with the one who has loved us. We are enamored with Christ. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witness surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us run this race. You and I are in this race. But let us lay aside every encumbrance, the sin that so easily entangles us. And you all and myself, we probably all have something, at least one thing, that easily entangles us. That seems to come up over and over again. Let us run with endurance. Let us not be allured. Let us set boundaries so that we are as distant as possible from the seductress. I'll close with this. The seduction to compromise our faith is powerful, and we are enticed daily to do so. Speaking for myself, not for you, but I think you would agree that we are all easily taken captive. We are taken captive by materialism. We are taken captive by so many various things that vie for our attention. And they seem to promise answers, and they seem to promise satisfaction. But I don't know if you notice, say, with materialism, that as soon as you buy something, pretty soon it's old, and you have to buy something new. See, it was never designed to satisfy you. By nature, it won't satisfy you. It'll satisfy you for a moment, and then pretty soon you'll be unsatisfied, and you'll need to go buy something else. You'll need a new position. You'll need to have a higher 
a, a better promotion. But Christ satisfies. See, that's where we get it wrong. We, we think that the promotion and the raise and the extra money and the new thing and all of the fun stuff, that's what's going to satisfy and Christ kind of is the cherry on top. No, it's Christ that satisfies. Eternally and forever. Jesus very clearly tells us, what will it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? And I think that's kind of at the gist of this, this whole Revelation 18. What will it profit if you gain all the luxuries of Babylon and you lose your soul? What will that gain you? It will gain you nothing. And so I'll challenge us with this. Are there any relationships that you have joined yourself with those who deny Christ? They may be religious. They may even be really good people. But either they deny Christ or they believe Jesus and. Sometimes I hear people saying, well, you know, we should pray together. And I know that they hold to a corrupt view of Scripture. And my thinking is, who are you going to pray to? And if we're not praying to the God of Scripture, then... I'm not quite sure why we pray with you because that's idolatry. To pray to any other God or to pray to any other thing that is not the biblical God, then that's idolatry. Why would I pray with you? I know when Simone and I, we used to minister out on the reservation. And, you know, there was a lot of animism which believes that everything has a soul. Or praying to the great spirit. That's a different God. We need to be cautious. There is no Jesus and. It's Jesus alone. Are there relationships that you've joined yourself to that deny Christ or that will not honor Him? Perhaps it's with another person. Perhaps it's with a thing. Perhaps it's with an ideal. If I could only gain this position, then I would be respected. Then people would really think something of me. I would encourage us all to seek Christ and Christ alone. I pray that you get promotions and that you get the things you want. But I pray that you have Jesus more than anything. Because that will satisfy, that will restore, that will give life. And I'm not saying that you can't enjoy your stuff. I'm saying just have your stuff in its right perspective and its right place. It's not above Jesus. It's not even equal with Jesus. It needs to be subservient to Jesus. And we can hold it with an open hand and say, Lord, however you want to do whatever you want to do with it. If you want to exalt me, you can exalt me. And if you want to bring me down, you can bring me down. And wherever you take me, high or low, I will serve you. And I will take up the cross. And I will follow you wherever you go. I want to be like Peter when all the crowds left Jesus. And he said to them, and Jesus said, will you leave also? And, G- and Peter, so perplexed, answered, but Lord, where would we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. I want that response. If you take it, where else am I going to go? Only you, Lord, have the words of eternal life. Only you will satisfy me. Let's stand and let's pray.